The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Roadwire Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, James Anderson. And this week, we got a first-time guest on the show, my friend Mark Winoker who plays in the NFBC. Uh, I've met, met Mark a couple of years ago in, in Vegas, and that was a lot of fun. And then we hung out again this past year, and we've been talking a little bit here and there. And I just thought it'd be great to have you on the show. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to join me, Mark. How are you doing? Doing great, James. This is a thrill for me, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely, man. Um, yeah, I feel like we're kind of uh, simpatico on a lot of things, so... Uh, thought this would be a fun time um how about just first of all like how how long have you been playing uh high stakes fantasy baseball in the nfbc yeah great question uh i love kind of the, the people's fantasy origin stories so for nfbc 2012 so this was my 12th season with the nfbc uh, i first played 125 dollar satellite Happened to win that league with uh, R.A. Dickey um, uh, winning the Cy Young that, that year and uh, one of my later picks. So it really got me hooked. But my, my origin story is a little bit interesting. Uh, I played my first uh, fantasy baseball league in 1985 uh, after purchasing the Rotisserie Fantasy Baseball book. And we started an NL only auction league uh, with uh, 10 other high school friends back in, in, in 85. Uh, Eric Davis was my was my big purchase then, and um, I was the original prospect guy. James, I went. Uh, my team name was the Winoker Wonderkinds, and uh, Gerald Perry and Brad Cominx from Atlanta were two of my picks. They were they were rookies at the time, and they did not really work out. Uh, but um, so I, I really got uh, my first taste there. We would get the sporting news once a week. It had the statistics. I'd go to my dad's office and we would enter him into the Apple II uh, and, and keep the stats that way. So, you know, I know we had the uh, the site crash the other day and all the hand wringing. Just imagine not having instantaneous statistics and having to wait <laughs> once a week and rely on somebody to enter them in properly. That's what we dealt with back in, in, in the 80s. I didn't play again until 2010, though. So basically 25 years later, uh, jumped into a Yahoo League and then started the NFBC in uh, 2012. And were you doing like football and, and that type of thing in the meantime, or did you kind of just take a break from fantasy altogether? I took a break from fantasy altogether. I went to the University of Michigan, 
Still a big baseball fan, obviously. 1986 was my freshman year at Michigan. Uh, I was a season ticket holder that year. Uh, got to go home for games one and two of the World Series. If you remember that World Series, the Mets lost both of those games, and I did not get back for game six or seven. But um, So I was still a big Mets fan and baseball fan there, but then kind of life took a different turn, which I think we'll talk about later, and uh, got into different types of interests, moved to Hawaii, so really got away from um, from like professional sports following. I was always a big Michigan football fan all that time, but uh, got back into the Mets in the you know mid two thousands when they um, you know started to really be good in, you know uh, in that time frame. And then I was like one of those people who said, "Oh, I can't do fantasy. I'm just a pure sports fan. I don't want to ruin my <laughs> fandom, right?" And that first year I did in twenty in twenty ten, I did a Yahoo league. I actually won it. I had no Yankees and no Phillies. I just said, I'm not drafting any Yankees or Phillies. And I actually won the league. But then I realized if I'm going to do this, and especially high stakes, you have to let your fandom at the door and uh, just go with the you know with the best players and best teams. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, fantasy has definitely ruined my fandom. Uh, but I I don't mind it at all. I, I love love playing fantasy baseball. So uh, I'm I'm in that mode where I'm I'm pulling for my fantasy rosters over the brewers uh whenever it's anything relatively important so uh if that makes me a bad fan then then so be it um yeah i don't think it does um yeah i i'm the same way obviously it's easier when your team is terrible like the mets this year so it's very easy to (laughs) to you know only root for the players who i have on you know on my teams that are mets um you know when they're you know when they're when they're competitive like last year there were a few games where I had the pitcher going against them and I was like kind of ambivalent about it. But uh, I love, I just love fantasy being your own, you know, you were the manager of your own team and you get to kind of dictate and, and decide how it goes. You're not beholden to the ridiculous moves Buck Showalter might be making at any given time. So uh, I totally get it. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a great hobby. Uh I think, you know, I, I had uh, the guilds on uh, about a month ago and, and he was talking about his uh, historic achievement in the Rotowire Online Championship overall. Uh, your achievement in uh, the Midnight Madness League, I think, is it's not quite on that large of a scale, but it's, it's very, very impressive to me. Uh, so I kind of wanted to start there. Uh, do you want to give people sort of background on... Uh, Mike the Mouth's Midnight Madness League and how many years in a row you you took that down? Absolutely. So uh, Mike the Mouth, Masato, um, godfather, uh, NFBC. Uh, he has a Friday night party in Vegas every year for the live events. Um, it's, you know, spent the Bellagio. This year it was, I think we were, um, I can't remember where we were this year. Um Another yeah, hotel. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking on where we were. <laughs> totally blanking. It was fun, though. Uh, it was a great spot. So wherever we're at, he gets a great space. He has amazing food and drink, and uh, it's a really good time. That's where uh, James and I got to connect again this year. And he then has a kind of a, a nightcap, which is a, a midnight draft. So midnight Vegas time. So from 12 to 2, 12 to 3 o'clock. It's a 12-team uh, $750 buy-in, kind of kind of a similar to the online championship format. Uh, the first year I did it, um, 
was back in 2018, and it was actually part of the Rotowire online championship overall. Uh, after that, it moved to more of a self-contained, almost a winner-take-all league, uh, 7,000 for first, 1,000 for second. Uh, I think last year, after I had won it three in a row, they decided to make it 6,000 for first and 2,000 for second. Wow. Uh, I think to penalize me a little bit there, changing the payout. Uh, <laughs> the payout. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I, I think one interesting part about it is it's an iron balls KDS. So basically you don't know your draft spot until five minutes before the draft. So you basically pull a baseball out of a hat and that gives you your choice order. And then you decide, uh, you know, uh, where you want to draft from. And, you know, it's just a nice, great nightcap uh, um, to that long, Day, you know, typically I've drafted a few auctions that day, and uh, it really takes a lot of uh, focus. Um, you know, I think so. I I won it four in a row. Um, that is, uh, you know, winning any league once is, you know, uh, you know, uh, for me impressive, but four times in a row, really impressive. It's certainly not like beating thousands and thousands of people. I'm beating eleven other usually drunk people. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I, you know, I haven't gotten a ton of credit because people are like, oh, you're beating a bunch of drunk people and you don't drink. So, uh, I'm like fair, but you know, uh, it's still hard to beat. And, you know, a lot of good players have played in this league. You know, there's been a lot of really, you know, really high quality players, uh, who, who have done this, um, you know, in 20, so we skipped 2020. So I won 2018, 2019, we skipped 2020 for COVID, 2021, I didn't go live, but Mike was very nice and allowed me to join virtually. That was definitely an advantage. I'm not going to lie because I, you know, uh, I, I could see on Zoom how drunk people were, and I was just sitting at home with my my files and my multiple screens. So that that was clearly an advantage that year. Went back in, in person last year, won it on the last day of the season. Literally Saturday night, took over first, so I was in first for only one day. I was convinced I was never I was not going to win the entire time until the last day of the season, um, and then this year happened. Um, and uh, so I'll, I'll just pause there if you want to ask any questions before <laughs> we talk about how the draft went this year, which isn't as well, good. Well, yeah, twenty twenty one. I think you you doing it virtually. I think that's that's grounds enough. I think for them to change the payout. Um, <laughs> just you know, I, I could see people being. Uh, annoyed by by you taking it down uh, virtually there um but yeah i mean uh, it's you know it's it's still impressive taking down 11 drunk people uh they've still you know they've still put up that buy-in they're still you know they're there because they're there for the the nfbc weekend they're good players so i, I think that's still extremely impressive to me uh what so what went wrong this year it, it sounds like you're kind of um foreshadowing uh, some some bad news yeah this is a this is not a good uh got not good news i mean this this league has bailed me out a couple of years as far as my overall you know um balance sheet at the end of the season um this year not going to happen i'm currently in 10th it's it's over uh i think brian jenner is going to take this down and, and deservedly so it started right from the jump i i i grabbed the 12 uh the 12 ball uh, out of the hat. So I had the last choice, basically no choice. They, they chose for me, my draft spot. And I got, I uh, got number 10. Um, and right from the first round when Jenner took Otani at nine, who we'll talk about later, 
Uh, I knew this was all, you know, not going to go well. I did go Tatis Bobby Witt, which, you know, is not really a terrible way to start a draft. Um, but in the third round, um, uh, uh, Jenner took uh, JTR. And I had Real Muto on all four of the previous winning teams. So when he took Real Muto one pick before me, um, I knew I, I knew I was doomed right there. I almost took him in the second round. I was going to just jump <laughs> him just to have like my lucky charm, right? But when Witt made it all the way back around in the second round, I was like, okay, I got to take Witt here. And it almost came back to me. I think Jenner basically sniped me like seven different times during the draft. So he has the team I wanted, and it's in first. So I can at least take some, <laughs> some solace in knowing that the team I really wanted to draft is the first-place team. I just didn't get to draft that team. Um, really, it's my pitching. Here's my first five. Sandy, Freed, Robbie Ray, Nestor, and Rasmussen. That's, oh, my, that's my five pitchers uh, that I drafted. So as you know, Ray basically didn't pitch. Freed just – just came back. Nestor's been gone. Rasmussen was great, and now he's out for the year. Sandy is starting to come around, but has you know really buried me in ratios. Um, and you know, I just never got my pitching right, and it, I just uh, I'm just buried. And uh, so it's not going to happen again. I think the one good thing is I don't have to defend my title next year, and maybe can just go enjoy the party and get to bed a little earlier for the main events, you know, cause typically I'm going to bed at three and it's kind of an adrenaline rush and, you know, you gotta, you gotta get up early for the main event the next day. And, you know, that's not always the best way to draft you know, that big league. So I'm good with it. I'm at peace. Um, I didn't get one for the thumb as I, as I was hoping uh, <laughs> after getting the first four, but uh, you know, pass it on to Brian. Uh, he deserves it. And um, yeah, that's the story of the midnight madness draft. Well, yeah, you had a hell of a run. Uh, I, as soon as I found out about that league, at my first reaction was like, "Oh, this is this sounds great. This sounds right up my alley." And then I started thinking about it. I was just like, "There's just no way that this is a good idea." Um, I'm always doing the main event draft the next morning, and that's that's got to take precedent here. So, um, yeah, I jealous of the league, but also uh, not not a league. I think that quite fits into my schedule. Um, okay. I want to, I want to head to a quick break and then, uh, we'll get into, you know, you mentioned Otani, we'll talk about him. Um, and we'll talk about, uh, how some of your auction leagues are doing versus how some of your, your snake league or snake draft teams are doing. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We know the weather can impact how far a ball can fly, but we never know what all the heat and humidity or cold air is really doing to the ball. The Home Run Forecast Index gives us an easy way to determine how good or bad the air is for ball flight. The index is calculated by measuring stadium-specific weather conditions and is displayed on a scale from 1 to 10, 1 being the most unfavorable for good ball flight and 10 indicating the most favorable air. There is a strong correlation between the index and the number of runs scored per game and the number of home runs hit. Games that have the highest index, 10 for the whole game, average over 10 runs and 2.8 homers over the course of the year. An index is created for each game, so you can see what it will be in any stadium and how the weather's influence might change over the course of the game as well as the wind direction. Right now, you can get access to the HRF premium site for only $5 a month and see what the index will look like for every hour of every game. Go to homerunforecast.com now to sign up. All right, Mark, we're back. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I've really enjoyed hearing you discuss, like, auction strategy. Um in the past, I know that you're, you're, you're a big auction player. What, what was kind of your breakdown this year for uh, how many of your NFBC leagues were, were auction leagues and how many were, were snake drafts this year? Yeah, so this year I'm only in 11 leagues. You know, that's definitely a, uh, a decline and foreshadowing again as we talk about what didn't go well and what I'll be doing different next year. I'll be uh, limiting that even further. Uh, so I have six auction and five snakes. So I have two auction championship teams uh, drafted it live in Vegas um, and then three online auction championship teams and then a 500 online auction that was also a DC. Uh, and a few of those I, I partner with Mike Maker on. Uh, so six auction and five snake this year. Nice. And shouts to Mike Maker. He's a, uh having a really good year um, from, from what I can tell. Um, so what, you know, I'm, I'm really excited. I feel like every year I'm going to be doing more auction leagues um, than the year before. Uh, I did my first one this year. 
Um, and I think the appeal to me, I feel like if you do say you did six auction leagues and six snake draft leagues, I think your, your player shares from your auction leagues kind of tells a more true story in terms of who are your targets going into the year than your player shares for your, your snake draft leagues. Um, so I'm curious if there were any sort of key players. I know, I know Otani was kind of the key to all your builds this year. Uh, you could, you could hit on start there if you want, but like, are there any key players you were getting in your auctions, but missing out on in, in snake drafts this year? Yeah, that's a good observation. I think, you know, I think what, what attracts me to auctions is it just fits kind of how I prepare my style of play and how I kind of think of players and just the ability to have a more of a quantification of their, um, their valuation, you know, an actual number, you know, like it's hard to think, you know, what is a player who's going at, you know, ADP 72 worth, as opposed to, I had this as a $7 player. Right. And then I can look at specifically average auction value and then, you know, make that kind of comparison. So just to kind of just uh, step back on why I like auctions better uh, another reason is because there's there's very little auction content out there. There's almost none. Um, it's all about snake drafts. And maybe I have the tiniest of edges in, in an auction uh, format because I've been playing it for a long time, had some success, and there's less uh, content around how to become a better auction player. You know, whatever whatever snake... Uh, edge I had years ago is long gone with all of the content, the great players who have come in, all the incredible you know information and statistics and metrics that are out there now. So I just, I just feel like it fits my game a little better. And you know, as you know, as you're starting to get into it more, it's just a lot of fun. You're 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 in the moment. There's money management. You know, it, it goes beyond just uh, valuation of players. Uh, it and and roster construction, you know, the, the the money management piece, I think, is super underrated. I've talked about that before. Um, so, f- what I look at is in my prep, I'll look at what are the valuations I have on players and their associated rankings, if you want to look at it as snake, and what's the current ADP or AAV going into the season. So I could visualize that. And what happened this year was the all of the top players were way overpriced according to the valuation I had for auctions, but were going at you know where they should go from a, from a snake perspective. So that kind of dictated to me more of a spread the wealth balanced approach, right? Because if the top players are overpriced, I don't want to be, you know, swimming in those waters. Uh, I'll be, uh, I'll be going down a tier or two where, you know, the the price starts to match the valuation more. So that spoke to me. Do a balanced approach. Don't do stars and scrubs. So of course I show up in Vegas and I see Posma going stars and scrubs, and I'm like, oh my god, did I totally like misread the market? And of course he's crushing. Uh, and I'm like, well. I don't, you know, I don't want to conflate him just being the best player on the planet with maybe his strategy being better. Maybe he just outworked me in fab, which I'm sure is true. But anyway, you know, I go in with a strategy that's dictated by how I how I look at my valuations compared to AAV and then ADP and, and kind of how the players are ranked. Um, so that's just kind of like my my general approach. Um, 
But as you said, your auction uh, portfolio really does show the guys you were on because, as you know, you can pretty much get a lot of the guys you want, not every single one because you run, you run out of money at some point. So, so Otani was the big one. Um, I was just sold on him from the get-go. I never wavered, I thought. And he was, honestly, I was still overpaying for him. Like, you know, even it's hard to get a perfect valuation because it's hard to match the, the hitting right. and the pitching, you know, kind of uh, combination. But I was willing to go over on him because I just really believed in him. I leaned into this tough decision, um, you know, narrative that was out there. Like, how do I, how do I start him as a pitcher or hitter? When am I going to know? And I'm just like, I think I can figure that out. So I kind of leaned into that. Um, I just loved him as a player. So I have Otani in five of my six auctions, but only one of my five snakes. So that's another reason why I just want to do auctions because yeah. if I want to get a guy, like I'm beholden to, uh, you know, the KDS, right? So uh, as I mentioned for the Midnight Madness, sniped on him one pick before. I think in the main, he almost made it to us uh, in one of the mains. I did a tag team, and I stupidly told Brian Vogel how much I loved uh, Otani and uh, changed his mind on him, and he took him at like four, and I, I thought we were going <laughs> to get him at, at like eight. Um, so, yeah, that makes, so that's, the, yeah. that's basically it, yeah. Yeah, and that's um... – yeah, I mean, I I did one NFPC auction this year in the our Rotowire Stake League auction, and I got Corbin Carroll in both of those leagues. But I just kept. I feel like I got him in maybe twenty percent of my my snake drafts, just because of where play. You know, you almost you'd have to take him second round by the time it got to like late March to in, ensure that you got him right and. Um, I just didn't have the the balls to grab Corbin Carroll in the second round this year, you know, so be it. Um, but that, that did. And then like, um, like Yandy Diaz was another guy like that um, for me, where it's just, you, you really like the player, but then by the time you get close to opening day, a lot of, a lot of people like the player and everyone's kind of thinking the same thing about, all right, I'm going to jump ADP here and take him. Um, so it's just, it, it's kind of, um, it's more sort of satisfactory, I think, or it could be if you, if you execute your plan, it can be more satisfactory maybe in an auction than, than in a snake. Yeah. I, I kind of looked at my portfolio, obviously to answer this question. So I think the, uh, there's two other things I noticed that were different between the snakes and the auctions. One is, you know, I was able to get some of the later round pitchers uh, in the auctions, Aovaldi, Savali, Heaney, Stroman, now, they've all had different levels of success this year. You know, my teams were doing a lot better early on uh, when they were all really rolling and before, you know, uh, injuries and then kind of, you know, some of these guys turned back into pumpkins. But you know, those were guys that looked like they were underpriced in auctions. So um, that's that's easier to do, right? Because you can just, you know, you just put them in your queue and just make sure when they come out, you know, you have your price and you can get them. You know, in Snakes... You have to remember to get them, you know, as you get in the heat of battle, right? You know, sometimes you forget some of your late round targets and you're just kind of in, you know, you know, you're just kind of scrambling sometimes with, um, you know, with how, how those are going where, and, and that's probably the other bigger issue is for auctions. You could lay out more of a, of a strategy around roster construction, category balance, where 
you could put together a team that you know should have all of those components and they fit within your $260 budget. I find for me and snakes now that I struggle a little more with that as it's going, making sure I'm balanced, making sure I'm getting the construction I got as each round kind of ticks off, as opposed to just knowing ahead of time, you know, if I get this kind of mix of players, uh, I should be balanced. I should have the right roster construction. So I, I kind of like that aspect of having, because I, I hear people say I have like my first 10 or 12 rounds scripted out in snakes. I just, I used to do that. I really don't feel like I can do that anymore. It's just so, there's so many branches that you can go off of. So I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I I don't, I mean, I don't really find that to be all that plausible to pull off, uh, especially if you're talking about like a, like a 15 team league with you know, like a main event, something like that. I don't know how you could really pre-script too much. Um, there's probably certain players. Like if, if you just said, you know, I'm, I want Alexis Diaz to be like my closer, like there's a round where, you know, you can always get him in. Um, but just, you know, those like the outfielders who go kind of fifth round, sixth round, starting pitchers who go like fourth round, fifth round, you're not going to be able to, like, to, to kind of execute a, a scripted plan on, on those types of players, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, Mike and I talked about, you know, let's treat snakes a little more like auctions. So let's say, you know, there's there's a player we want and we know he's a 14th rounder. You know, let's make sure we're in the 13th round we're willing to jump. But that depends on how your first 12 rounds go, uh, right? Because in the 13th round, all of a sudden you might need a different position or a different category contributor right so it, it could throw you off there where in an auction if you know that guy's a five dollar guy you're gonna get him for you know as, you know as long as it doesn't go to ten dollars all of a sudden right you know that's gonna still fit in your plan um the other thing james that's interesting i mentioned that in rob d's pod that you referenced earlier was uh, uh fab I, I really noticed my um the players i have a lot of in fab uh differ between auction and snakes uh, so guys like I have a lot of Royce Lewis, Geloff, um, Willie Castro, Chaz McCormick, Brian Bayo. I, I have them on my auction teams, but not on my snake teams. Um, and I think, you know, this is what I mentioned earlier. There's a different um, attention paid to fab. I think in the main events, I think having the overall changes strategy a little bit and how fab is played, you know, Half of my auctions are those 150s, so I think those are not as you know not as competitive as a $1,500 or $1,700 league. So I've been able to do a little better in fab in those. So I've noticed a little difference in my fab, you know, in my in my snake auction portfolio based on who I've gotten in fab, and I seem to have gotten a lot of really useful pieces in in my auction leagues, and maybe maybe I haven't done as well in in, in, in the snake drafts. Yeah, so you, you just kind of attribute that to just like main event fab almost being just kind of the hardest sort of frontier of, of fab bidding or, or the, the, the snake draft type of leagues that are main event buy-in level and up maybe. Is that is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, I think part of that and just I think the lore of the overall, you know, I think, yeah. you know, there's an auction championship overall, but it's not as prominent. Um you know, a lot of us can name the last 10, you know, main event winners, but we'd, we'd really be hard pressed to name the last three or four auction championship winners. And, you know, the OLAC you know, has an overall, but it's not as it's not as sought after. So I think people's 
fab preferences or strategies change a little bit based on kind of that overall piece and what they're willing to spend on players. Um, you know, I've noticed maybe the the auction prices are about 75% of the main event prices. So I think that's another thing, you know, uh, been able to get more mileage for your money in the auctions than, than in a main event, I think. Yeah, I, I think that that checks out. Um, and I've noted I'm only in the one uh, online uh, auction championship, but I, I have noticed, uh, you know, I've been kind of borderline dollar days there for like a month or so, but it hasn't really stopped me from getting a lot of the guys I've wanted. Yeah, I got Chase Silseth for $2 unopposed in, in, in one of my OLACs this week, right? So that, that's not something you're, you know, you're typically going to get. So you can still really build good depth and get good streamers and things for really cheap in those, in those OLACs for sure later. Yep. Why, why do you think um, – and I, I totally agree with you about the, the lack of auction content that's out there. Um, and I, I've only recently, um, and you're, you're kind of a big uh, part of this. I've, I've only sort of recently started, um, kind of picking up on just the different kind of strategic elements to an auction that are, are very rarely discussed and probably very rarely sort of, um, observed even from people that play in auctions, um, I guess, I, I, do you have sort of a, a reasoning behind why there's just so little auction content out there? Because it, it's very good content when, when you hear when you hear good nuggets. Yeah, I, I try to search those out and I'm just like uh, really hungry for more of that. Um, and this is the same for fantasy football. There's zero auction content out there. It's all ADP. It's all you know, draft specific, you know, this round, this, you know, this round, this kind of construction. I mean, I think one is you know, the content goes to where the players are, right? So most players don't play auctions. So the content has to align with what right. most players do. I think that's more the economic reason, but um, I think it's more nuanced. It's not as hot takey and it's, you have to really, um, um, it's just a different type of preparation. So if you were a content provider, you would have to, to do auction content, you'd have to play auctions. You'd have to be willing to do multiple modes of preparation, right? So uh, auction prep and snake prep are different. Now, you know, the, the player evaluation is the same, that doesn't change, but um, how they're priced in the market changes, your use of projections to get at a valuation, that's different. So I think it, it requires uh, multiple preparation, which, you know, is, is time consuming and, and challenging. Um, I think people are just like a little bit scared to do an auction, like um, having to be in on every potential player. And, you know, it takes four hours instead of two hours. I think that drives people's yeah. interest, right? You know, you know, in Vegas, it's not as big a deal, but like when you're doing, you know, uh, you know, a preseason drafting like do you want to just jump into a quick rotowire online championship for an hour and a half or do you want to jump into a three or four hour you know auction and also auctions have a snake draft component too so not only do you have to spend three hours grinding 23 picks you have to then do a seven round snake draft which really tests you because 
if you're not keeping your file up to date, you know, you don't know who's in there and, you know, what do you need? You know, which position am I missing? Should I be going upside? Should I be going just, you know, depth? Um, you know, I think, and, you know, I, I think it's just like the, the money management piece. I think that really is tough for people. They don't get the economy of, of an auction, the, the inflationary piece and how to, uh, uh, allocate your your resources. It's just very. It, it just adds a whole bunch of other co- uh, components that I think would actually fit great in auction. I mean, it, it would give so much more interesting content. You could have a money management, you know, pod. You could have a, you know, a inflation pod. I mean, there's a lot of different things you could talk about. So I think it would lend itself, but I don't think enough people play, and then it just requires a lot more different skills and just different things you'd have to kind of work on to get good content out there. I do think it is. I think you hit on like the fact that it is, it's kind of um, intimidating getting into your first NFBC auction um, more so than it would be just getting into your first NFBC snake draft, you know, like you you might be second guessing whether you're ready uh, or you don't want to kind of, be the fool in the room who really mismanages their budget. And then they know that they've got a, a team that's not going to compete, that type of thing. Yeah. I think there's a little more of a disaster potential at an auction than in a, in a snake In a snake. Honestly, if you follow ADP, you'll, you'll draft a, an average team, but you know, it won't be an embarrassing team. You're not going to make a fool of yourself. Right. But you know, AAV is a little different. You can't necessarily follow that and get a good team. You know, you could definitely leave money on the table. That's everyone's probably biggest fear is, oh, my God, I left $15 on the table out of my budget and and just kind of looks bad. And, yeah, so I think think getting in and doing that first one and getting comfortable, I think, is kind of a barrier to entry for for people. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, yeah, I can't wait to, to get into more of those. Um, for 2024, uh, hopefully we'll do uh, one in person in Vegas this year, which would, which would be a lot of fun. Um, so, what uh, you know, you, you mentioned the Otani thing. Um, were there any sort of parts of this this 2023 season that you you just think like before the season you were sort of right on, whether it be kind of like a player or um, you know, a category or just kind of something that, that you think you, you sort of got right before the season. Yeah. Unfortunately today, James, my, what I wish I'd done differently bullet list is quite a bit longer than sure. what went well. <laughs> um, you know, the season's really ebbed and flowed. I've had like seven of my 11 teams have been competitive up until now. I'm starting to, this post all-star break hasn't really treated me so well. So I'm not feeling so great today about things, but I know we have, you know, eight more weeks. And so, you know, there's a lot that can happen. Um, so I think what went well for me was my prep. Um, I didn't do any DCs this year for the first time. And that gave me a lot more time for prep. So I think I did better deep diving into players. I think I did better, you know, running my projections and valuations. I think I did better in um, thinking more strategically roster construction uh, strategy, auction strategy, instead of having to have my mind consume with who am I drafting around 27 of, you know, of this DC. So, um, so I, I, I stopped doing DCs one because I wasn't doing good in them anymore. I, w- I was, I was successful early on in my career in DCs and 
um, the, the DC game has gotten way tougher and the people are just amazing at that now. And that's just not where I'm good. So I don't want to put my time and energy towards that. And it had the added benefit of, of being uh, more, uh, having more time for prep, which I thought was important. Also, I felt fresher this year than in years past by not doing all those early you know, uh, uh, preseason drafts. I came into the season into Vegas feeling, you know, really, really ready to go. And, you know, we're in August now in the dog days and I'm still, you know, the frustration levels off, off the charts, but like, I'm not like burnt out. Like I don't want to do this anymore. Right. So I think by having fewer drafts, it kept me more fresh through, uh, through the season. So I think that, so I think preseason, that was my, what went well. And then in season, I, I really limited my content intake in season. Um, you know, Rotowire is my go-to as far as pods, you know, that's in my weekly rotation, but I've honestly cut down a lot of the article reading, the, you know, savant looking, um, uh, you know, I'm not in any discords. I don't, I don't purchase any fab articles or information. So I kind of do it all myself. You know, um, I have, you know, I, I have Mike as my sounding board, but I don't really have another, like, you know, I have some other friends that I, that I definitely talk to, but I really limited um, my content intake. Um, I know there's amazing content out there. This is not disparaging of that at all. It's just more my process to avoid the groupthink mentality that sometimes seeps in and to just make the moves I want to make for fab and lineups for better or worse. Um, a lot, you know, I'm sure I'm missing things. I'm sure some of the content will help me be a better player, but that's just kind of what I've chose in season is to really limit my content intake. So those are the couple things that I think I will continue on into next year, but there's, there's plenty I do want to change. Yeah. I mean, having, having Mike Mager as a sounding board and uh, cutting out the, the less uh, savvy noises uh, is something that I'm sure a lot of people wish they could do. Uh, okay. Let's get into, let's get into the, the things you, you kind of want to do differently for next year. What, what's the first one? Well, you'll like this one and it's prospect evaluation. I mean, this, this season, and I should have known from last season, but this season really brought home to me that if you are, if you don't know about prospects, you're going to be behind the eight ball. Five years ago, a few players would make a difference, you know, um, and, you know, that was back when, you know, they had a lot of September call-ups and you could honestly get away with just going with the old boring vets, fading the prospect type, and I think you can do just fine. Um that's not the case anymore. Um, I did I, I did a dynasty league for a few years, and that was good for me because I did have to dig deep. You know, looking at your top four hundred, and you know, I was we had a miners draft, and I was I think that helped me. I went away from that a couple of years ago, just in the in the idea of that was a daily league, so I really don't like you know the the daily moves was just too much on top of everything else. So that was just it wasn't like I didn't like the dynasty aspect, um, but. So I think prospect evaluation, um, you know, without without that, I felt like I was a little lost this year. You know, I was kind of guessing at guys. Oh, Taj Bradley. He looks like the guy. Let me let me spend a quarter of my fab on him. And, I, I, you know, and you know, honestly, I listen to your your spots on 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 the Sirius XM because I'd love to hear your takes on the players. And it's super influential and kind of 
um, why I have a lot of Royce Lewis, but I think he's coming back. James is coming back. So I think, I think, I think we can still get value out of him, but so I think number one is prospect evaluation and having to be better at that. I think if you're not, um, you're going to be, you're not going to be a winner. Yeah. I mean, is in that, uh, would you say you were kind of doing enough for sort of the prospect, uh, evaluation of guys to consider on draft day. And then you were sort of scrambling kind of in season with the, the guys getting called up. And, and so being more kind of seeing like a, a few weeks ahead, like maybe this guy might be coming that type of thing. I think it's both, frankly, I don't think I was prepared for the draft day. Um, you know, Oh, I, Dustin may, well, you know, he's been around for a couple of years. Like I knew he was a great prospect, you know, I saw him pitch, you know, I liked him. So, you know, there were certain guys that were good prospects that I, you know, that I know about that, you know, that I'm able to, you know, you know, uh, for my main this year, you know, Grayson Rodriguez, you know, I drafted him. Um, did I do a good enough job vetting him? No, I, I knew the name. I knew that he was the top prospect in the league. Um, I knew that I started out hitter, hitter, hitter in my main and I needed to grab pitching. So I grabbed him. So, you know, I mean, like it's just it's just not enough to just kind of do it that way. Um, and then, you know, in season with all the pitchers who came up, all the hitters, I just felt like I only knew about him that, you know, that week they came up. And that's, you know, as you said, if you can be uh, be ahead of the curve a few weeks earlier, you know, some guys aren't in the pool yet. So, you know, only so much you could do. But um, so I think it's all the above, James. I, I really need to do a much better job. And I think as part of my prep and I've talked to Mike about this. Uh, we need to have not only a deep dive of all the draftable players, but a deep dive of the top 30 to 50 prospects that we think have the greatest chance of coming up this year. So we're much more prepared. So I think that's, that's a change that, that I think we're both going to uh, in, in, install for this year. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's really, really challenging. Uh, like, obviously I spend a ton of time on prospects, but uh, you know, I like, for instance, I didn't envision Brian Wu being, a mixed league option in the middle of the summer, early summer this year. Uh, you know, same thing with like Andrew Abbott. Like, so, I mean, you could, you could be as prepared as possible and you're still going to miss on, on those types of guys, not miss necessarily, but just they'll surprise you. The fact that they've become relevant as quickly as they have. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a crazy year uh, that, yeah, that might, tie into um things to people might overreact to for next year uh, in a sense but like what what else what else do you want to um improve on so i think more conviction for my top starting pitching targets uh i i think uh this year i think my the leagues that i'm gonna not cash in are because i did not draft the pitchers that have done well this year so sandy um Julio uh, Urias, although he's looking a lot better now, Nola. You know, I, I have a tier of pitchers that I, you know, I think project well. I've seen them pitch. They've had success. Their prices are reasonable. That's who I'm grabbing. I think I need to identify the three or four elite starters that I, I really believe in and just make sure I get them. You know, I know people want to diversify their top guys because of injury concerns, but I think I need to just be more, you know, more aggressive and more decisive on the pitchers. Like for many years, I, you know, uh, DeGrom was my guy and, you know, that was, that was easy pickings, you know, and 
Uh, so this year, I, re I didn't really have that guy at the top. Um, I, I, it should have been Schreider, obviously. So that's a massive miss, uh, you know, on my part. Um, so just having more conviction for those top starters, uh, I think it's so crucial to get those right. If you miss on those top starters this year, you you you've really struggled. Unless you, you know, just nailed every Fab pickup and you know you, you were able to, to 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 get all the the right late guys. But so I think that's the next thing is just more attention to the top starting pitchers, not just be so comfortable with the ten or fifteen that look good and whoever falls to me or whoever's price is better, be a little more specific in who I want to grab. Yeah, that's that's an interesting topic, the diversification in, in an auction uh, with expensive pitchers. Um, you know, I think it it's easy to sort of have your guys who are going to go for like one to six dollars that you're going to try to load up on on the cheap. But you're saying you'd, you'd be willing to say, you know, whoever you think, you know, pitcher X is the guy that you want. Maybe he's got the sixth highest AAV before the season among starting pitchers, but he's the guy you want. Are you okay leaving like 80% of your auctions with the same SP one? Yeah, I think I will be if I'm, if I am, if that's the one, you know, uh, I think is, is, is the right decision, you know, cause to diversify for diversifying sake, like if there's three guys that I'm like, yes, these are the three guys, then yeah, I'm fine with, you know, 33% on, on each, you know, but mm -hmm. that's, if there's three guys, you know, I'll have to really look at that. And yeah, like, yeah. So, I, so I think I am willing to be more overweight or have a bigger part of my portfolio on a couple of key guys. You know, there's obviously the injury risk there, but if I think the performance is going to be there, I think I'm going to, have to be, you know, uh, willing to do that. So like I, if I had done more auctions this year, I think I would have had, uh, at least a, a few teams that probably had Rasmussen and, and Springs. And then I would just be just devastated in May or whenever that was that they were both done. Um, would you have considered that just a bad break and not something to, to alter for the next season Would would there have been, some sort of bad process there just given like kind of neither of those guys having, you know, true sort of work workhorse history in their profile. Like, cause that, that's kind of a scary one that I, I definitely could have seen happening to me if I'd been doing more auctions. Well, I think maybe just don't get anyone from Tampa Bay, you know, <laughs> be uh, a new strategy moving forward because of this, pandemic of injuries they seem to have on um their pitchers it's funny you it's funny you mentioned that i'm just pulling up my so the first online auction i did which is one of my really competitive leagues it's up there in the overall and um you know it's, it's been doing really good in the league um these are three pitchers i i i i purchased on draft day degrom rasmussen and springs so I had all three of those guys on this team that has uh, still and, – and Nola uh, as my other top pitcher um, who hasn't really worked out for his, his – that's a team with a $1 Savali, uh, $1 Strom, and a $3 Eovaldi, right? So hmm. – um, and I was able to, I guess, get enough – and I also spent 180 on Mason Miller on that team. So that's – so – it's, it's amazing what you, you know, sometimes you feel like, oh my God, like 
I, what, a, what a, you know, I'm so unlucky, but you know, you, obviously you keep fighting and you, ne- you never know how, how a team. So yeah. I, and this is another one of my, what not to do next year is not draft injured guys like Carlos <laughs> Rodon. Like, I mean, that's, that's one where, um, so yes and no. I, um, I think, I think you could consider that bad luck, but I also, there's some process around um, trends, you know, uh, you're seeing, knowing a guy's already hurt and, and, and not, not getting him. But um, yes, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the, the Rodan thing is just so uh, I I'd been just out on him for forever. And then he kind of proved me wrong two years in a row. So I was open to the idea of being back in. Uh, fortunately that, that one was just kind of lucky for me um in the in the other direction of just i didn't really end up with it i think i got him in one nfbc league just because that was the one league where he was there where i was willing to take him and he just wasn't there for me in other leagues so like i got lucky sort of reverse with rodan but yeah that's that's a good i mean that's that's always a good rule of thumb to kind of avoid injured injured pitchers um And I've gotten much better at that, but, you know, and this kind of morphs into a second one, which is that sunk cost fallacy, right? You know, um, and I'm, I'm not good at that. I I think I even mentioned on a previous pod where, you know, um, so like someone like Avicel Garcia, right? I dropped him second week. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I just, I just have a bad vibe on this guy. And that turned out to be a great move. But then I keep guys like Starling Marte, Javi Baez, Randall Gritchuk. Ranger Suarez, Tyler O'Neill, you know, all these guys kept them all season because I invested more draft capital in them. So, and, you know, obviously draft capital equates to upside and, you know, those guys, you know, Avisal Garcia doesn't have any upside. These guys had upside. So you could make the case to keep them, but what did, what did that get me by keeping Rodon all this time? It just buried the, my main event team, which I had kind of climbed back into contention. Now he's just completely torpedoed me by holding on to him. Ranger Suarez is striking out like three or four guys a game and is really not, not moving the needle for me. Um, Javi Baez, I gave 200 at-bats to on a few teams. Totally complete waste of space. We, we finally did drop Marte this week, even before he went on the IL again, which, you know, he was 100% owner, 98. Um, so I think, I think stop drafting and stashing injured players and um, just some cost, like just let go – be be bold it could could it, you yeah. could have egg on your face but also it's probably the right place so i think those are two things i just have to get better at next year yeah i i really struggle to recall a time where i was really kicking myself for dropping a guy too early uh it it seems to happen more often the other way like you were saying with rodon like i finally dropped javi baez and my main event this past week, but I mean, I just, I don't know. I'd probably started him two out of the past nine lineup periods or something. So it's not like, it's not like he was doing like active damage to me, but I could have dropped him two months ago. And then I'd be laughing at the five suckers in my league that cycled him through since then, you know? And I just say, just so just to wrap this part up is, you know, the, the last thing um, to consider for next year is, uh, my fab approach. So uh, I, I've been traditionally a more conservative player. I like to keep money towards the end, um, minimal triple digit bids. 
Uh, this year, I decided, you know, there's a much more aggressive climate. You know, with all the, the, the what's really changed in NFBC is the fab content. Back in the day, you would do fab and we'd move on to the next next week. There would be no discussion about it. There's no hype on it, no talk. You know, on the message board, you'd have uh, Gecko with his um, alerts on, on on players, which was always kind of fun. But other than that, there was no content. There was no discussion. People weren't, you know, showing off how great they were in fab and you just went on to the next week. You literally go weeks without fabbing anybody because – there was much more like lineup consistency. There were fewer injuries and you just believed in the back of the baseball cards, you know? So, so that's changed. And I realized just like in an auction um, economy, you don't want to be, Oh, I can't spend on a guy. Well, guess what? At the end of the day, you'll be overpaying on all the mid tier guys and having money left over at the end. So I want to be more aggressive this year. Um, and I don't know if it worked. I don't think it worked, you know, um, I probably spent 50% of my budget on Taj Bradley and Royce Lewis in, in several of my leagues. And that has just not paid off clearly. And I'm really hamstrung right now. Um, I have like 50 bucks in leagues. I'd like to have like a hundred to 150. So I just have to be, I think more discriminating on who I'm going to be more aggressive on. And, you know, I, I don't have a problem going for a guy if I, you know, if I really think it's the right move, but I think I was just too aggressive this year too willing to just jump in with both feet and and not and, and just say oh I'll figure it out later, so I have to modulate that some. I'm not going to go back to my you know more conservative roots, but I think uh, I just don't think this 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 fit my approach, and I don't think it worked for me. So I think that's another thing, and that's maybe something people might overreact from you know as as your next question. Are people going to change their fab approach with so many of the big spends not not paying off this year? Is that going to change? My guess is probably not. Um, I think people probably remain aggressive, but that's something to look out for. Yeah. I mean, picking your spots in fab is just, uh, it's so hard to, it's so hard to sort of thread that needle. And cause you know, there's always going to be guys who are worth um, a triple digit bid and finding those guys and avoiding the guys that aren't worth it. Um, but that, you know, like I always find that, a lot of my best bids of the year were just kind of one or $2 guys that I just was like a, a week early on or whatever. And um, like they, they had a really good matchup and then they kind of excelled in that matchup. And then I just kept them for a while. Um, but it's just, it's so, cause we've had, I mean, we've had so many prospects come up where you did have to go triple digits to get them. And, you know, some of them have, paid it off it's the ones who didn't pay it off are are more memorable um you know i i definitely apologize if uh my royce lewis analysis led you astray there uh that one's really been stinging for me as well um so what what do you think what else do you think people might overreact to for next year i know i i was talking with uh rob di pietro about uh just saves um you know are people gonna pay up even more for, for the best closers? Are people going to look at sort of the amount, the, the, the lack of starting pitchers high up in the player rater and go cheap on starting pitching as an overreaction? Like, I, I think there's a lot that people could overreact to. Yeah. And no, no worries on the Royce Lewis. Uh, you know, you just confirm what I was thinking, like, Ooh, this could be a difference maker. I like this guy. The one thing I, sh 
my only regret there is his injury history. And I know, you know, we, I don't want to get into the whole injury prone injury history thing, but, and he's had, unfortunately had a bunch of injuries and, you know, there may be uncorrelated who knows, but you're putting a lot of eggs in that basket of a guy who has a, had a hard time staying on the field. Um, hopefully he gets back now and can have a, a strong finish and that could really make a difference. So um, no, no worries there. You, you were just more kind of confirming what I was kind of thinking anyway. You know, I think the rule changes is going to be interesting, right? You know, um, as far as, um, you know, this year was kind of a black box. And I think the projection systems really struggled to model what the rule changes were going to look like as far as on-field performance. So I think managers next year are going to react more appropriately to the rule changes. You know, um, I think around the need for steals. But like, like just for example, on steals, like I was guessing maybe the five to nine steel guys would jump up to 10 to 15. I don't think that happened. It looks like the one to nine guys didn't do any more uh, at all. It was all the, 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 the 10 plus steel guys. So I think, I think managers are going to react to that and, and um, not count on guys who last year had five to get 10. They're not going to. Um, so I think you'll, you might see some shifting of uh, pricing and valuation based on, um, the, the stolen base profile uh, of certain players. I think that's going to be interesting. You know, I'm the biggest ratio whore there is. I mean, I, I draft for ratios and it's, it's just been a nightmare. Like that's where I get upset with fancy baseball is, is ratio destruction. Like I can deal with almost anything else, injuries, you know, bad hitting, but you know, ratio d d destruction is where it just really just nails me. Um, so, you know, um, you know, might people shy away from the marginal two starters next year? You know, might the breakout middle inning guys, you know, get more play? Um, you know, the super elite ratio guys, you know, be, you know, be pushed up more. But, you know, in saying that, I, I looked at my teams last night, you know, James, and I am strikeouts are what, where I'm really hurting also. Um, so it's always that balance between the ratio and the strikeout guys. So th there's a lot to react to next year, you know, um, and I think the player, you know, the manager pool has gotten so much savvier, so much better. I don't think there's going to be a massive overcorrection in any one direction that's going to be wrong. Uh, I think people are just going to get more aligned and just get better and better. So um, I just think they'll take the, this year's information. I think the projections will be better next year. So I think yeah. projection drafters, which I am one for sure, might do a little better maybe next year with – more accurate projections this year. It's been really all over the map and no, no critique of the projection uh, guys. It's all these rule changes were very material in, in, in what happened this year. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, all right, Mark. Well, you got anything else to add before we get on to a fun subject to close it out? Just one question for you, you know, um, as someone who uh, loves to partner and, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, getting Mike to be my partner years and years ago was the best thing I ever did, you know, professionally and, and uh, professionally uh, fantasy wise. And personally, you know, I've, I've, I got a great friend out of this, you know, in addition to a great fantasy partner, you know, I, I know you and Todd partner. I'm just curious, you know, now that you've, you guys have been doing this for quite a while, kind of how that's evolved, what, what works great for you uh, now as partners, are there, are there still things you're working on? I'm just curious on that partnership. You know, I, I know Todd's a great guy. I'm just really curious how you, you do that partnership piece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I wouldn't say that I, 
I don't love to partner, but I do like partnering with Todd. Um, I would say I would dislike partnering with probably 95% of people. And some of those people are probably even like my favorite people to talk baseball with and like the NFBC. It just, it really, it really has to be, there just has to be so much kind of overlap on the players you like. I really think that that's like the main thing. It's just, if you, you know, even if you disagree on like, say you each had like 20 top targets, even if you disagree, if you disagree on like eight or nine of them, that's too much. I think like, I think you need to be really kind of lockstep on 75% of your targets or so. Otherwise there's just going to be, you know, you're going to start playing mind games with yourself of, like, well, I really wanted this guy, but my partner said no, and now he's having this awesome season, and I'm pissed about it. Um, or vice versa, I wanted this guy, and like, um, I led my partner astray, and now he's pissed about it. Like, um, so I, I really think it's just the, the key is just agreeing on as much of the player pool, like, kind of naturally agreeing on as much of the player pool as possible. Because I, I just think it, you know, partnerships are going to kind of crumble if it gets anywhere near sort of a fifty percent disagreement rate. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I think also just strategy, right? Roster construction, auction strategy, where to allocate resources—you really have to be on the same page. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting dynamic. You know, this year our share teams uh, aren't as competitive we have one you know we have one really good auction team um our main is, is not good um in the 700 club uh but mike's having a fantastic solo um season which i love i mean that gives me just as much you know uh joy that he's having a great year and hopefully some of our our partnering and our prep together you know contributed to to you know to uh, to, to some of that you know I'm ha- i have some good solo teams too so I think you can get a ancillary benefit of partnering in your solo leagues too. Um, that maybe maybe just didn't work out in your particular share team because of whatever reason, injuries or other things. Like our auction team now, we lost Shane McClanahan. You know, Evaldi went down, Kershaw was down, so you know our pitching is just falling apart. But I don't think any, anything really wrong with you know our, our process there. But yeah, I, I think. Um, yeah, just being in agreement on player evaluation and then strategy, I think, are, are the two key things. But um, it also has benefits for for solo uh, your solo team. So I, I really enjoy it because who else cares about your team other than your partner, right? Um, so it's good to have someone else you can kind yeah. of complain to and whine to and um, and have occasional moments of uh, happiness with. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun just having someone to text and be like, "Oh man, Clay Holmes save situation coming up," you know, like that type of thing. Um, and that, that, like what you said with, with you and Mike, uh, like Todd and I, one of our main event teams is, is third in the league. The other one's kind of out of it where we're second in our OC league, but, uh, we both have solo main event teams that are actually right next to each other in the top 40 of the overall. So I do think that's, and I I think a lot of that is just us kind of, um, you know, kind of scrubbing the player pool you know, well enough to where that we had some, some good leads on, on guys to go after there on our solo teams. Um, okay, Mark. So I, I wanted to, uh, I don't always get to do this, but like I wanted to talk live music with you. Cause you know, you're out there in Colorado. Uh, 
arguably the the live music capital of of the country or at least the uh west side of the country um and that's something that you and i have kind of bonded over in the past so i've got some some live music questions for you to close this out i'm ready okay so this is a big one uh what's the best concert you've ever seen live that is, I mean, that is the big one, right? Um, it's something you always kind of think about, especially as you, as you keep seeing new concerts, right? Um, this one's still pretty easy for me. It is uh, The Grateful Dead, uh, October 9th, 1989, Hampton Coliseum in Hampton, Virginia. They were playing as the Warlocks. Uh, we drove down from Ann Arbor. I was in college at the time with a bunch of friends. Um, they played Dark Star, which was the Holy Grail at that point. They hadn't played that in over five years. And the biggest bust out, Addicts of My Life, they hadn't played in 17 years. I literally almost quit Michigan in my senior year to go follow the band that I was so impacted by that concert. Um, that's kind of a legendary concert. I still hear it you know, on the Grateful Dead channel on Sirius XM. And when I hear any songs from that show, I still get goosebumps. And you're, you know, we're, we're talking, what, 24 years later. So it brings me right back to that moment. Um, honorable, you, you asked me for honorable, uh, honorable mention. Um, that same year, Soundgarden at the Blind Pig in Ann Arbor. And the Blind Pig is a tiny bar. This is before they really broke. Um, and Chris Cornell literally tearing the roof off the place with his mic stand, like jabbing his mic stand into the ceiling and like ceiling tiles falling off. Uh, just an absolute mind blowing show uh, of seeing Soundgarden before they got super big uh, and before, you know, grunge was really hitting in 89. Um, and then the best festival was Desert Trip back in 2016 in India, where Coachella is. Got to go with my wife, Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, Rolling Stones, The Who, Roger Waters, and Neil Young. And the funny thing is I remember in ninth grade thinking the Stones were too old to go see. And then 34 years later, uh, I'm going to see them in concert. So uh, that would be kind of my... the the top of my live music uh, experiences. That's really incredible. Uh, eight, 89 Grateful Dead is, is probably my favorite, uh, especially kind of like summer, fall of 89. Um, it's probably my favorite sort of era of theirs. And uh, I don't know if you know, today happens to be the uh, 28th anniversary of Jerry Garcia's passing. So. Um, yes, the days between, yes, between his birth and his death. Um, you know, um, so I, I, I'm hoping you're going to share yours, but I'll just roll into this one real quick and then hopefully you'll tell me your favorite show you've seen. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I've, you know, after Jerry died, you know, I, I saw every other iteration. I saw further the other ones, The Dead, Phil and Friends, Rat Dog, Dead and Company. I, I saw them, you know, all at least once or a couple of times, just just hasn't been the same for me. This isn't just, you know, anyone who's gotten pleasure from it. I love it. You know, the, the music still sings to me, but without Jerry, it's just, you know, wasn't the same. I was very fortunate to be of an age where I, you know, I could see him, you know, from 87 to 95. I saw it's a little blurry now and that's good. Cause if you remember everything, maybe you weren't there, but um, I saw between 65 to 70 shows, uh, you know, during that time frame. And, you know, uh, a bunch more Jerry Band shows. So um, that's something I'll always cherish. It's always great to have that uh, in my back pocket. My first date with my wife was a dead show. So, you know, um, 
yeah, today is a special day. You know, yeah, um, uh, you know, once he passed, it, it was really a, a, a tough thing, and it really hasn't gotten much easier, frankly. Yeah, and I think what was so great about '89, uh, at least the shows I've I've listened to, uh, was definitely wasn't wasn't old <laughs> enough to be uh, following the dead around then, but um, like Jerry was just kind of peak Jerry for for a good stretch of 89, which was really kind of a special thing. And I think the whole band was really kind of at the, at the top of their game that year. Um, so I, I'm obviously I'm, I'm too young to have uh, seen Jerry live, but uh, my, my favorite show I've ever been to was uh, the July 3rd, uh, 2011 uh, show at uh, Fish's Super Bowl in Watkins Glen. Um, it was a uh, part of like a, a three-day festival, and they uh, finished things off with a, a first tube encore with just a a ton of fireworks going off, uh, kind of behind the stage or off to the to the right of the stage. Um, and that was just uh, kind of the perfect capper to the the perfect festival. Um, my my best friend since we were in first grade went to Watkins Glen from Wisconsin in a Jeep Wrangler. And uh, we, we really had no idea what we were doing in terms of, of going to a, a music festival for that long and, and what to bring and that type of thing. But uh, just didn't matter. I mean, we could have shown up with absolutely nothing and just had the best time ever. So uh, always remember that one. Nice. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Fish is, I think the band I've seen the third most, uh, Wilco is now my second most um, seen band. I'm in double digits and getting ready to see him again here in Denver in October. So uh, the last 20 years, really post Jerry uh, for me has been Wilco uh, and Jeff Tweedy is kind of, that's to me the the best American band and I love fish as well. But um, so, you know, uh, so Wilco is keeping it going for me uh, all these years later. Awesome. Uh, this one, I, I have no idea where you're going to go, but um, what's your favorite concert venue? Well, you you kind of you kind of said it earlier. That I'm in Colorado, so it's Red Rocks. Uh, you know, Red Rocks is just the pinnacle of of live music. Uh, I think the reason is because the bands think it. You know, I think this is like mecca for bands. Like they just put on, and sometimes maybe they put a little too much pressure on themselves, and maybe it's not the best show because. You look out at that crowd and, and the rocks and it's, it's 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 super intense. I think some of them get a little altitude sickness and, you know, they don't realize they can't just go full bore like they usually do at sea level because they will run out of oxygen and they will struggle uh, later in the show. But it's got to be Red Rocks. I don't think it's the best sounding venue ever. Uh, you know, it's outside. There's wind. There's, you know, the, the elements. But um, I just think it's the vibe. I just think it's. It's the it's the interaction between the artist and the crowd. Um, I don't think you see that kind of level of, of togetherness uh, at other venues. Um, it's you know it's just it's such it's such a great um, you know uh, you get great skies a lot of times. You know, oftentimes weather comes in. Uh, I think Jack White probably is my favorite ever Red Rocks show, and it was in, in a driving rainstorm, but just the energy was just off the charts. You know, people you know sitting on just wooden benches, you know, kind of no pretension. Um, and uh, so I think Red Rocks has to be my favorite ever. I've probably seen 
since I've been out here 28 years now in Colorado, the most shows I've ever seen at a venue is Red Rocks. Probably Giant Stadium in Jersey is probably second from my, from my time when I lived on the East Coast. My, probably my second favorite is, a, is an interesting one. It's a Royal Albert Hall. Uh, I was in London in 2016 and got to see David Gilmore from Pink Floyd at Royal Albert Hall. And that's just a legendary venue. And to yeah. see, um, you know, my top two favorite band uh, and, and see and see, and see Gilmore there was amazing. So I go Red Rocks and then uh, Royal Albert Hall. Wow, that's that's a really cool one. Royal, I did not expect to hear that as, a, as an honorable mention. Uh You've, you've just been to way more cool venues than I have. Um, like I haven't made it to, to Red Rocks yet. I haven't made it to like the Gorge or anything like that. Um, I've, I've definitely been to Alpine Valley the most, uh, just living in Wisconsin. But I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I just don't really have the itch to go to Alpine anymore. Um, it's just, it's kind of gotten a little, uh, people just get a little sloppy there and you know if the if there's been any kind of rain it gets a little too muddy um and it's not it's not kind of like a camping atmosphere it's more kind of like a tailgating atmosphere um so i'm i'm kind of searching for uh, a a great venue experience i i can't really say that i've i've had one i mean i've had a lot of fun at uh like um some small venues in like new Orleans, um, just seeing kind of fun jazz bands and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, you've definitely got me beat on the venues for sure. And, uh, I think you had me beat on the uh, best concert as well. Uh, I mean, 89 dead. Uh, so then this, this one is a, is a really fun question to, to kind of close it out. Um, if you could take a time machine back to see any, band or musical act perform live what would it be and like it could be a specific show or just kind of a an era where you just really wish you could have seen that band um so you can really go wherever you want with this one uh this is my favorite question because i i think about this a lot it's just it's so interesting to think what you could you know what could have been or what you could have done so you know being a classic rock fan and child of the 70s you know it would have been great to see Jimi hendrix the doors Bob Marley, Led Zeppelin. I mean, I, honestly, if I could just jump in a time machine right now, send me to the original Woodstock and just let me sit there for three days and and, and see, you know, see that experience. But my biggest live music regret, so where I'm going to go is a band I could have seen, an artist I could have seen, right? Those are all a little bit before my time. I was alive during all of those uh, those acts, but, you know, uh, you know, too young to, to have seen them, you know, maybe Zeppelin potentially, but not really. Um, so someone who I could have seen who frankly is my biggest live music regret is Frank Zappa. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, um, he's the act I've listened to the most live music from that I never saw live. So I've listened to the most live Zappa without ever having seen him live. Um and that is my absolute biggest regret. He played, I had to look this up, but um, I knew he was on tour then, uh, February of 1988, Royal Oak, Michigan, three nights. So we were, I, was, I was there. I was in Ann Arbor. Um, I think we were probably just too busy getting ready for that, that first spring 88 dead tour when we first really got into it to kind of have, have noticed it. And I think we got really into Zappa um, a little bit like the next year, but... 
Oh my goodness. If I could have seen Zappa live, uh, my live music career would be, would be complete, but that's a big hole in my resume is missing Zappa. I just think his, his live shows, his presence, just his innovation. Um, he's the one I would really want to see. You probably weren't expecting that one, but, uh, it's, uh, it's Zappa for me. That's a, that's a great answer. Uh, my wife and I watched, uh, the Frank Zappa documentary a couple of years ago. Um, very, very interesting uh, man. I mean, let, let alone like the music, but just very interesting guy. Um, so honestly, like if I'm just being completely honest, I think my answer is uh, the, the trucking up to Buffalo show from 89. Uh, with the dead. Like, I that. Um, but uh I also just the uh, have you seen like the stop making sense DVD um, like yeah. be, being at that talking heads stop making sense show live would have just been just the pinnacle. I think I, I still get goosebumps when I watch that uh, that concert and uh, I still haven't seen David Byrne live. Uh, that's a huge regret for my wife and I, he, he came to town like, five years ago, something like that. And my wife saw the tickets and she just thought they were too expensive. So we didn't get them, but uh, we both regret not shelling out uh, to see David Byrne a few years ago, but uh, seeing talking heads peak of their powers live would have been pretty incredible. That's an awesome one. Uh, I did get to see David Byrne at Red Rocks uh, a couple of years ago. It was excellent. I remember when true stories came out, we went and saw that like uh, it's opening night, you know, back in Ann Arbor, uh, the Tom Tom Club, if you remember yeah. them, they opened for the dead uh, New Year's 88. And I was at that show. So that was a great opener. And uh, I did see I was at that Buffalo show, James. I was up. Uh, I was there for the uh, 89 July 4th show. Um, so that's a great call, too. But uh, Talking Heads, incredible band. I would have loved to have seen them live. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for the, uh, the trip down memory lane with the live music. That's uh, I just. My, my other passion other than fantasy sports is definitely uh, is definitely music and live music. Well, it's, it's been a blast, Mark. I really appreciate uh, catching up with you and, and uh, covering all the ground we covered and uh, hope to see you in, in Vegas in the, in the spring. Yeah, I'll be there in a couple of weeks for football and I'll definitely be back in the spring and good luck on uh, taking those mains down you and Todd and finishing strong. And thank you so much for having me on. It was a blast. Thank you, James. Thanks so much. Uh, Thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, I'll be back with another episode next week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.